0: That was Tickled Pink by Henry Threadgill. It comes from the album Up Popped the Two Lips, T-W-O-L-I-P-S, not two lips like the flower. That was the first release on Pi Recordings from 2001. Seth Rosner and Ewan Wang, the two men who run Pi Recordings, are my guests on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the OSIRIS Network. This is episode 64 of the show, and it's a little different from what we usually do. As you probably know by now, a typical episode is based around an interview with a single artist. But Pi Recordings is such an important label when it comes to the kind of music covered on Burning Ambulance. I mean, Roscoe Mitchell, who's released music on Pi, both as a solo artist and with the Art Ensemble of Chicago, was the first ever guest on this show so I thought it was important and worthwhile to have these guys on to discuss 20 years of the label. Uh, Speaking of labels, I am extremely excited to announce that the first two releases on our new label, Burning Ambulance Music, are available uh, currently exclusively on Bandcamp, but I'm looking at putting them in a few select stores here and there very soon. In the meantime, though, you should order them directly from us. They are Alkiza, by the Indonesian avant-garde drone metal duo Senyawa, and Polarity, a duo album by saxophonist Ivo Perlman, who was my guest on the last episode of the podcast of 2020, and trumpeter Nate Woolley. Both of these albums have been reviewed in The Wire, and Polarity was written up in Downbeat and Jazz Is, Alkisa was reviewed on Pitchfork, and there was even an article about Senyawa in the New York Times. So, I mean, I'm confident that when people hear this music, they'll be as thrilled by it as I am. So if you want to buy them, visit burningambulancemusic.bandcamp.com. Like I said, they're not currently available in stores, and they're not on any streaming services like Spotify or Apple Music or Tidal. We are a small operation aimed at people who want to really support amazing work from brilliant artists. So please visit burningambulancemusic.bandcamp.com to listen to Senyawa and Evo Perlman and Nate Woolley. And if you like what you hear, buy the records. And if you enjoy this show or the website, I hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to create more and better content in 2021 and beyond. So become a subscriber if you can. Okay, so, Pi Recordings. I've been listening to their releases since pretty much the beginning. The first titles I heard were The Year of the Elephant by Wadatta Leo Smith's Golden Quartet, and Organic Resonance, a live duo album by Wadada and Anthony Braxton, and The Meeting, a reunion album by the Art Ensemble of Chicago. I was at one of the Art Ensemble's performances at the New York Jazz Club Iridium in 2004 that was recorded for the live double CD Non-Cognitive Aspects of the City. Uh, We talk about that record a little bit later in the show. I haven't heard every record they've put out, but I've heard at least half of them, and I've written about a ton of them for Stereogum, for Bandcamp Daily, for The Wire, for Burning Ambulance, for Jazz Is, and probably other places as well and I've known Seth and Ewan personally for years. I've run into them at the Jazz Gallery or at the Vision Festival or in record stores, and we've always gotten along, and I've always enjoyed talking to them, so I hope that that feeling comes through in this conversation. We talk about a lot of different things relating to the label in this interview. We start from the beginning, but it's as much about philosophy as history. They talk about why they do what they do, the kind of music they're choosing to support and promote with their releases, and what it says about the culture, that their highly specific niche within the world of jazz has been so well-received by critics and the public, and that so many of their artists have received major awards. I mean, Henry Threadgill is a Pulitzer Prize winner and was recently named an NEA Jazz Master. Roscoe Mitchell is an NEA Jazz Master. Vijay Iyer is a MacArthur Fellow, Tyshawn Sori is a MacArthur Fellow, Wadada Leo Smith was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Pi releases routinely land at the top of jazz critics' polls every single year. Anybody looking at the landscape would have to say that if there's any kind of debate about the status of traditional versus so-called avant-garde jazz, a term that these guys don't like, as you'll hear, uh, those avant-garde guys have won But it's still a business, and the music business is tough, tougher than ever, honestly. So we also talk about the realities of what it's meant to run a small independent record label and how they've managed to keep it going for 20 years. I'm going to play another piece of music now. This is Living's A Gift, Part 1, Springtime, from Jen Shu's new album Zero Grasses, Ritual for the Losses, which will be out next week. So listen to that and afterwards you'll hear my interview with Seth Rossner and Yulin Wang of Pi Recordings.
1: A little brighter when it's time. I was telling Phil that uh, I had I I was googling Hafez this morning, mm-hmm. and I clicked on something. And I think I downloaded a virus onto my my computer. That's so I've been cool. trying to get rid. I've been trying to get rid of this thing. It's just terrible.
2: You know, I've, I've often said it's computer viruses that have really inhibited Fez's career. It's just, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs>
0: just. All right, cool. All right, let's roll. Yeah, let's dive in. So I don't actually know this. So how did you guys meet, and what was the decision process that led to starting a label? Like, were either of you involved in the music business before that? Uh,
2: so I had couple of years of experience at the Knitting Factory. I began working at The Knit in 1997, uh, specifically on their record label. And that's where I sort of made some early connections with some of the AACM people like Threadgill and Roscoe, and I met Muhal there, etc. And uh, I met a gentleman named Velibor Padevsky who was pretty Padevsky, uh, who was pretty fundamental in introducing me to a lot of these people and really kind of educating me, frankly, about this music. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent kind of encouraged me to start the label. So I began the label in 2001 and then probably like in 2002, very, very early on, Yulin reached out to me, you know, I'll, I'll let him jump in about the impetus of that, et cetera. But, uh, he reached out to me and we met and we kind of hit it off and got it rolling from there. I mean, he can certainly tell his, his, his half of that.
1: Yeah. So I was, um, uh... I was in the middle of a career change where I basically made a decision I was going to leave my prior career. And I was, you know, shooting around, looking at a lot of different things. Uh, And, but one of the things, you know, I've always been a big jazz fan and had been super impressed with Seth's first five releases, you know, because the releases were by Threadgill, Roscoe, Wadada. And field work, which I actually was, which was Vijayir Trio at that time, uh, which I wasn't as wasn't uh, familiar with, but you know, it, it's it, back in two thousand one to have musicians of that caliber kind of show up on a label that I knew nothing about was something of a surprise. You know, there was a time when there were not a thousand labels out there; there weren't a, you know five thousand releases every year. It was some insane number. And when you went to the record store and you saw these things and you saw, wow, Gill records, like, and then what's Pi Recordings? You know, I thought, first I thought it was a bootleg or something, it was something weird. And uh, eventually I just basically made a decision to cold call him. I don't remember how I found his contact information. I might have actually looked in the phone book um, and, and when, when there were such things, and I cold called him. And I remember uh, we met at a uh, bar on uh, 110th Street in Broadway, and we sat for a number of hours. Just, you know, just, uh, are we allowed to curse? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, if you want this for the podcast, I don't know if this family needs yeah, to be no, family friendly or not. Okay, you know, so we, you know, we, 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 we just, uh, we, we talked for a very long time, and we found that, you know, we had a lot in common in terms of our musical taste. Um, we seem to get along very well. And, uh, you know, and I think he started, maybe it was at that first meeting where maybe you said, you know, and there's this potential for me to actually work on an art ensemble Chicago record. Do you think you mm-hmm. might be interested? You yeah, know, and I, don't, and I don't know what person in, in, in his or her right mind uh, who loves this music when presented with the opportunity to work on an Art Ensemble of Chicago release, I would say, well, you know, nah, that doesn't sound that, you know, it doesn't sound that interesting to me. Um, you know, remember, Art Ensemble had essentially been dormant for a number of years at that point, uh, much as Threadgill had been dormant for a number of years before he reappeared on Pi. And so it was, it was one of those, you know, like, whoa, you know, I mean, I, I might have a, a ability to work on an art ensemble release well there we go you know and that that, that kind of cemented the deal and we uh, and that's how i got started Mm
0: -hmm. that yeah the art ensemble record the meeting i i thought was interesting because i mean well number one it's a great record but also it was right on the heels of them putting out tribute to lester with ecm so how did that whole thing come about so
2: I think I think Euland I think Yuland remembers it pretty accurately. So you know again I I, I had met Roscoe from the Knitting Factory days, and um, you know essentially after we did the Threadgo releases, you know spoke with Roscoe and he's you know Roscoe is if 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 Roscoe is nothing else he's enthusiastic and ready to go write and uh, and just document at any moment. <clears throat> so you know we began talking about the Note Factory, which you know, I think in the absence of the art ensemble, the note factory, you know, could have maybe been kind of like a focal point band for Roscoe. So we did song for my sister um, because that's what he wanted to document. And and that was just kind of incredible. You know what I mean? The, the opportunity to be able to work with sort of Roscoe's partners in the music for years, like Jeribu and Tani and Spencer, and at the same time had some younger people in there like Vijay and Craig. That was pretty. That, that that was pretty incredible, and I think to a certain extent, you know, that was something that, you know, I had hoped, and then as you and I got together, we agreed, you know, would be kind of like a foundation of pie. You know what I mean? To be able to have these older musicians and still have kind of like a mentoring, nurturing relationship with younger musicians, and have them grow through that, and let them be kind of like the next branch of it. You know. So we did that we did that uh, Note Factory album and, you know, it's probably any time you're going to speak to Roscoe. It's, so I, we, I knew about the Tribute to Western recording. That recording had been done in the late 90s. That, that had been done while I was at the Knitting Factory um, and I was aware of that recording. But, you know, as is as is often the case with ECM recordings, you know, they kind of take a little while to gestate um, mm-hmm. and they, they can sit in the can for half a minute. So it wasn't that, that we had forgotten about it. It was just, we know it was there and, you know, whatever, ECM's going to do what ECM does, you know, there's, I mean, listen, there are recordings that, you know, that have been sitting in the camp for quite some time now that aren't out and who knows if they'll see the light of day. So we just did what we wanted to do, which was, you know, Roscoe, I think kind of offhandedly just mentioned, hey, I'm talking to Joseph and, uh, you know, he's... He, you know, he, he wants to, he wants to record again. And, you know, when you and I met and we're talking about different things and, you know, I remember we're talking about Arthur Blythe. I mean, we were, we were just out there just, you know, raising names and, you know, what do you listen to and, you know, what are you into? And, and, you know, certainly the art ensemble came up and, you know, there was obviously a kind of a spark in Eulin's eyes. Um, I think the first time we ever got together to listen to music, he pulled out uh, some original press of people in sorrow and, you know, Hey, let's listen to this. You know what I mean? So, it was pretty obvious that art ensemble would be an interesting thing for us to work on. And I raised it and he was like, Oh, absolutely. You know, if there's an opportunity to to document the art ensemble and you know, the art ensemble in in its truest form now, you know, with Joseph back in it, the only, the only absent member is Lester, let's do it. You know? So I called up Roscoe and I said, Hey, you know, if you're serious and Joseph is serious and and he wants to get back to performing again, because at this time Joseph was, you know, pretty monastic uh, in all senses of the word. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the, the only thing that really existed was that trio with Leroy and, and Myra, uh, equal interest, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, we jumped at it and, it and we, you know, we were able to do it the right way. Those guys like to go have a lot of days in the studio. I mean, they want to sit there for like a week uninterrupted and, and, and meals are coming in and for them, you know, it, it you know time time has not moved in that sense. They still want to do it their way, the right way. They've got to be together. Days on end, be able to play, experiment, and feel comfortable, and just track a lot. Just track a lot, and that's what we did.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and as far as your question is in how what happened with ECM, it was very bizarre. I mean, we thought oh. that you know, like, yeah. I mean, so that was that was Phil's question. So. Sorry, I totally,
2: forgot. I totally <laughs> forgot. Sorry, as I as I uh, rambled, I was like, this is a long answer. Yeah. So what happened with ECM? So we get the record together, and uh, literally like a month or two before it's supposed to come out. We get uh, we get a note from ECM that says, oh, you know, we see you have a new art ensemble recording coming out. That's so funny. So do we. Uh, We'd like it if you shelved your recording. And uh, we, you know, we were sort of like, oh, that's so funny. Your recording seems to have been shelved for a very long time. I'm not really sure why our recording needs to get shelved. But, you know, if you would like to discuss a business deal where we take a step back, we can do that. Um, but otherwise, you know, we're in and, and we're doing it the way we think it's supposed to be done, which is document, get it out there and start, you know, and, and, and just start letting people hear it. And that pretty much was the end of that conversation. And the, both recordings came out simultaneously, which was completely, you know, coincidental. Um, and in some ways, you know, in retrospect, I think kind of incredible, you know what I mean? Like very, 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 uh, very fortuitous that that could occur. I don't know that anyone would have said that's the best business plan in the world, but
1: you know. Well, I think it actually worked out pretty well because, as I recall, um, and Philly, you know, if we're getting into such granular detail. You know, let us know. But as I recall, um, uh, we ended up getting a double. We got a big feature article from Gary Giddens in the Village Voice, and it actually was the last Weatherbird. He had just quit The Voice. He had one more article to write, and that was the one that was in the can. And, you know, I don't know about for you, but for me, Gary Giddens was the man. You know, being a New Yorker, being in New York, hitting the scene, the guy who documented the New York City jazz scene for me back in the 80s through the 90s. Really, through basically my entire life as a jazz fan until you know until he retired from from the Voice was Gary Giddens. I mean, he was to me the Voice, mm-hmm. and uh, you know to have him do this big feature article. And I, as I recall, he actually said that he actually preferred our recording, which is one of those like yes moments. <laughs> um, and coincidentally, um, on in that same issue of the Village Voice was his final review. Which is actually a review of Liberty Elms Tactiles. Oh wow! So I don't remember that. in that in that copy of the Village Voice, which I still have, it's you know you open it up and there's there's the, the big thing on on the ensemble, and then like on the next page there's actually a review of Liberty Elms Tactiles, and that's and to me that was almost like even at that moment it was almost like, man, I've already got it. You know, if it all ended up right now, it's okay.
0: Yeah,
1: I've
2: arrived. I've arrived. Yes, yes. yes, yes. Yeah,
0: it's funny to me because like the so many music critic peers of mine you know like their idols were like you know lester bangs and then other people are like huge worshipers of chris Gow, you know and stuff like that and to me it was always about gary giddens and greg tate those are the two writers who are Mm -hmm. the biggest influences on me just Mm -hmm. you know and i'll say it to to anybody who asks those are the guys who shaped my brain in a big big way Right. You know, and taught me like what to listen for and how to listen. You know,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, because for me, uh you know, uh, Giddens was my guidepost for how to navigate the New York City jazz scene. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is this is an alien. You know, it's an alien thing for a kid, right? And you know, just justine, he, he, you know, he, to to pick up the Village Voice every week and pick pick up. You know, and then this is me growing up in New Jersey, uh, to to pick, pick up a copy of the Village Voice at the, at the newsstand every week and read Gary Goodens and it seemed like there was a sort of shining mountain, you know, across the way that somehow, oh, one day I was going to be able to, to I will be there and I will I will be part of this community. It's just, you know, I will go to these shows, I will go to the clubs um and hit the late sets and all that stuff it just felt like this this dream that was that was out there
0: yeah i mean i remember the reason i first went and saw cecil at the vanguard was because you know i read (laughs) one of his like blurbs and was like you know cecil taylor's a genius just go and i was like all right i'm gonna go and i i was not at all prepared didn't you know like came away like my head was spinning you know but Over the, you know, eventually I wound up seeing Cecil five times, you know, between Mm. then and 2016, between like 97 and 2016, you know, and actually ran into Giddens at one of those shows, which was uh, when he did the giant, like 20 piece orchestral thing at the knitting factory, the one on Leonard Mm. Street. And Giddens and I were like up next to each other up in the balcony, you know.
2: So so I'll jump in with a, you know, only because we're talking, we're talking about Gary. So, you know, sometimes you and I, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, moments and in, in running the label. So I don't remember when it was probably sometime, you know, close to 2008, nine, 10, something like that. We go to a, uh, we go to a, uh, an interview that Gary's holding, I think with Manfred Iker, you know, and, and, you know, we, at this point, the internet is, is pretty much the, the foundation of how you communicate with people. So we've never met Gary, you know, but he's written this piece on Rudresh, uh, Rudresh Mahantapa's album, Kinsman. Um, and in a New
1: Yorker. Yeah. In a New
2: Yorker. You know, and it, it comes out like around Christmas, you know, and I think the, or it comes out after Christmas maybe. But the story is like, you know, I think Gary is at a party and he sees his editor and the editor says, okay, you know, Gary, it's the holidays. What would you want to do? And Gary's like, I would love to do a piece on this album. This album's incredible. You know, like, if you if you give me the leeway to do this, that's amazing. And he does it, you know? So we're there and we get this chance to meet him. We walk up and we're like, you know, pleasure to meet you, you know, Seth Rosner, and Wang, Pye Recordings. And, you know, in that moment to see his expression change that, you know, we were the guys behind Pi Recordings. We, we, we were clearly not visually who he thought we were. You know what I mean? And, and I think he was literally like, you're the Pye Recordings guys? And we're like, yes! You know? <laughs> <laughs> and we've arrived, you know, and he's like, Amazing. Okay. <laughs> nice to meet you guys. <laughs> yeah, he,
1: he saw a couple of young punks. He thought we were, you know, two, you know, wise and old men or something. Nice. No, nope, just two guys. You know, kind of like a little, little shiny in the nose, and you know, we and yeah. there we were. Yeah. But it was
2: it was exciting because you know he he had written about us and done his thing and it, and it spoke about the music first, which is what you would expect, and then he met us and he was like, wow, times are changing, baby.
0: <laughs> so. A lot of your a lot of your catalog is obviously by AACM affiliated artists. So was that just was that part of the vision from the beginning or was it just because that was who you were able to connect with through the knit or you know, like where does the the pie philosophy dovetail with AACM principles in your mind, I guess?
2: um you know i guess acm listen the acm principles are absolutely you know were a guidepost in the in the foundation and the starting of the label and you know in many respects listen they still continue to be you know i think i think nine times out of ten when i read about any artist who's accomplished something or any group that's worked together to do something you know one way or another i kind of always go back and think about the acm and just how much those guys did i mean that's you know if you just just to say it in the simplest terms you know a bunch of african-american guys from the south side of chicago that go out and you know take over europe and just you know advocate for themselves and do it for themselves and do it in you know forget about the fact that you know it's avant-garde and people may have been interested in having open more open ears at one point you know if, if you look at the arc of that and what all of those guys have, have accomplished it's unbelievable i mean you know, I'm, 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 sure I'm, I'm sure I'm biased, but it's tough for me to identify another group that has done so much and from the get go supported one another. I mean, these guys had no you, you could never have looked at that in 1965 and said, oh, yeah, I see Pulitzer here. You know what I mean? I see MacArthur. I, 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 I see, you know, changing the direction of music. You, you know, that, that's unbelievable what those guys accomplished um so yeah it was absolutely a guidepost and it wasn't about you know listen i you know i was at the club i suppose i could have connected and hooked up with anybody it was just simply you know something about them you know what i mean that their music was unbelievably unique and um but again you know you got to kind of bring it small scale it was a few of them you know what i mean it was about threadgill i mean it was always about threadgill there's no question about it you know the, those december concerts would make a move that then morphed into zooid you know, those were things to look forward to five days out of the year. And he's not really recording for Sony Columbia any longer. So that's the only opportunity to hear a new Threadgill. That was something that I just, you know, amped up for 51 weeks out of the year until it arrived, you know. Um, and then, you know, the art ensemble with Roscoe and who Muhal is um, and just, you know, who George Lewis is. You know, George Lewis has kind of created the first mobile computer the guys walking around with like a you know a, a, a portable computer in, in, in a suitcase you know i mean it's who they were was just it was kind of awe-inspiring so the opportunity to document them absolutely you know was was, was something to jump on and um yeah you know it was never meant to be an aacm label you you, you know only aacm can be aacm but those were the guys out of the box who you know I had and then very quickly Yulin had a shared interest in and you know and the fact that again they were working with a younger group of musicians that they were still in their own way kind of embodying the idea of mentorship you know that hey go go to Henry's and sit and Henry can play piano for you and Henry can show you stuff you know go call Roscoe up and Roscoe wants to talk about music you know the idea that they had that mentorship going and that there were younger musicians there who were doing things and you know wanted to carry that tradition forward and we thought that tradition you know was going to create avenues in the future yeah we gravitated towards that
0: Mm -hmm. that idea of carrying things forward is really manifested in a way on the non-cognitive aspects of the city record because I mean I was at one of those shows and it was you know, it was very much a transition for the art ensemble because it was, you know, post Lester, obviously, but also post Malachi and, and, you know, Jarman left again, not long after that. So it was really like two generations on stage at that point. So, I mean, tell me about the behind the scenes of staging those concerts and making that record.
1: Well, I remember, I remember, you know, the, 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 the run was booked long ago, obviously. And uh, Malachi died. Not was really shortly before that run. I think it was not that long before. And I I, rem- I think I remember having a conversation with Roscoe, and you know, are you guys going to go on with this? And it was like there was no hesitancy. It was like absolutely, you know, like the music continues. The music goes on as long as there's one of us standing and we believe in the the, the tenets of uh, the Art Ensemble of Chicago. We're going on, and. um and yeah, so it brought in Jaribu Shahid for bass and obviously Corey Wilkes on trumpet. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, those guys, you know, I, I don't think anything holds those guys back, you know, and that's true for all of that sort of early cohort of AACM guys, the guys that we have recorded. Um, you know, it's, 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 they figure out a way. You know, and they, they, they know all the tricks in the book. They figure out a way to get it done, to to get the recordings done, to get the performances done. They, you know, there was no stopping.
0: mm mm-hmm. the, uh, the most you guys have ever put out, because I went on Discogs and I counted, the most you've ever put out is six albums in a year. You've got about 90 releases in the catalog now. Are they all still in print physically? Everything is in
1: print physically. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of those things that's, that's surprising about the label, or people find surprising about the label. For years, we did five releases every year, and I think in recent years, we've bumped it to six, mostly because, you know, we have a roster, active roster of musicians of probably 10 or 12, right? And uh, many of our musicians are constantly chomping at the bit to record and to put out new ideas. Uh, and uh, one of the more difficult things about our job is actually to tell people, you know what, sit on that and sleep on that for a little bit, you know, because if you want, if you want to put it out, if you absolutely need to get it out, I'm not certain that we're ready for it right now because we just don't have the bandwidth. Uh, and and and, but I think that actually instills a certain type of kind of rigor to the process. I think that sometimes musicians do need to maybe just hold back a little bit and rethink. And rather than just, you know, I got this brilliant idea, I got to get into a studio right away and do it. Uh, these days, it's so easy to record, it's so easy to release things, there's no shortage of releases out there. And then, you know, the market is just completely flooded with releases, constantly re- flooded with releases. And so, I, you know, I think Steph and I have always felt that there is a benefit, you know, to, to just holding back sometimes and just thinking about it for a little bit and digesting the idea before we put it out there. Um, as far as the five or, five or six releases a year, um, we have been lucky that we've been very well recognized by the critical community. So if you look at the NPR polls, if you look at the New York Times end of your lists, I mean, we're always on it. I think there was a stretch for like 13 years in a row, we had always had one or two things on the New York Times end of your list um in the npr poll i mean there was one year when we had like four things in the top 10 and like all six releases in the top 15 or something insane like that uh and so people tend to think like oh you guys must put out a ton of releases to get you know the recognition for your four or five releases when you know the takeaway is no actually we put out five or six releases and you know and we do our best to try to get recognition for all five or six releases because that's what we owe our artists. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we owe that to them. They're, 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 uh, entrusting us, they're putting their faith in us to help them get the word out on these things. And so we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we didn't, you know, put in that effort to get them that recognition.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was actually something I was going to ask you about is the fact that you guys do, extraordinarily well in critics' polls, and also that a lot of your artists, you know, have won major prizes, MacArthur Fellowships, Threadgill's Pulitzer, you know. And I'm wondering what you think that those things say about the state of jazz, quote unquote, and Pi's place in the overall ecosystem.
2: I don't know about the state of jazz. That that that's a tough one, right? I mean, there's certainly listen. Jazz obviously has, you know, jazz obviously has a lot of different camps, and it has a lot of different you know kind of outgrowths of of how of how it's of how it's you know, being performed or how it's just you know being presented. Let's say, you know, back to kind of the AACM thing. Listen, you know, getting I think involved with those guys early on and getting involved with the people that you know, we're kind of mentoring with them. I, I, I think it's, it's pretty understandable that, you know, the direction we were headed was with a kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, a serious direction, you know what I mean? So to get a Pulitzer, you know, in 2001 or 2008 or 2015, you know, seems like a wild, wild dream, you know what I mean? But if you look at the amount of, uh, the amount of uh, recognition that was coming through the MacArthur's and through the year ends and through, you know, the positions that were, that were starting to line up in academia and Ivy Leagues you know it, it it began to look very much like hey someone is someone is sort of recognizing not necessarily what we're doing but what the artists are doing and it just happens to be that we're the guys documenting that yeah um, so you know the state of jazz at least for where we are is you know I think we've sort of gotten involved with the presentation of jazz in a serious way. But, you know, the opposite of the Lincoln Center seriousness of it. You know what I mean? Obviously, we're not a Young Lions thing. And obviously, we're not a, you know, there's a history here that needs to be, you know, that needs to be abided by. You know, but we're, we are the, hey, you know, jazz is about composition. Jazz is not about, you know, or one part of jazz is about composition. Jazz is not about just being up there and, and, you know, sweating and improvising. It comes out of nowhere. Far from it. This is stuff that takes a tremendous amount of work. And these are people that have spent a lifetime honing their craft and have given their life to do that, you know, um, as have others. You know, I, I, I don't mean to say that the guys were working with are the only people doing that. But that was what we gravitated towards, you know, documenting that. I mean, in the beginning, our kind of tenants were original voice, the ability to lead a band, you know what I mean? Keep a band together, that, that's something, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. like, you know, Zooey's been together for 20 years now. Not a lot of bands out there today that have been together for two decades. That stuff, that, that takes an effort, you know, and have, have a music, have a music that's yours, you know? So whether that's Threadgill or Wadada or Roscoe or Steve Coleman, they have a music, they, they have a thing that's theirs. And at one point that was, that was something in the music that I think was, was recognized a little bit more than it was when we started doing our thing, you know? So where is jazz today? And what, what does it say about where jazz is? I'd like to think that we kind of push that a little bit more into the forefront, you know what I mean? Because again, when we began, it was a little bit more about like playing over changes. You know, how, how hard does this person swing, you know? And, or chops, and you know, we were pretty consciously like, yeah, there's something else there too though, man. You're you making your own book of music? You know, how many people are gonna emulate what you did? How many people are gonna study what you did? not just sit there and say wow that person knows every 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 standard and every key you know we were going for something else
0: yeah i do i think it's interesting that i guess the the way i look at it at this point is the avant-garde guys kind of won, in the long run <laughs> you know like they were beginning in the 60s they were kind of sneered at you know in the 70s and 80s everybody was struggling you know but at this point it's hard to say that guys like Roscoe and Braxton and, you know, and Threadgill and even Wadada, you know, people like this, like it's hard to say that they have not won the the long argument in a way. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's a, it was a long battle and for them. Uh, I mean, they'll never be mainstream, right? But, but there but, is no mainstream. I mean, look, like that's
0: true? the thing that was coming into my head is like, you know, Harold Mayburn is brilliant, but was never going to get a Pulitzer, you know. Right. So right. you know it's it's a whole different it's a whole different ball game
1: in the at this yeah. And, and I think that you know we certainly one of the things that we've seen, and I and I, I don't want to take Seth and I have talked about this. You know, it's 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 hard to say who's pushing what. Really, everything works in concert. But when we first started, um, certainly the AACM guys were avant-garde right in quotes but the music of the proteges of all those folks so so this is in the evolution of the label was you know we, we recorded those guys but then you know i think Seth and like both agreed that it would be kind of a dead end as a label that's all we ever did it was like oh you know another another sort of first generation aacm guy what have you got next that we thought it was important to start to reach out to the younger musicians so seth reached out to vijay Iyer did the field work record and then you know we, we had our conversations with liberty element and and and, and then uh rudresh mahathapa and then steve lehman and then kind of taishan Suri and on and on and on um the when those guys the younger guys started putting out their own thing you know they were considered avant-garde in some ways. You know, we would have people say, oh, you know, Rudraesh Mahathapun is avant-garde playing. You know, he's playing free. And it's like, you know what? This guy is the last thing from free. Mm-hmm. But people just don't have the years for it. And so to just to lump everybody who's playing something a little bit different than spangolang lang on the, on the cymbals as free. We've come a long way since then, you know. And I think part of that, um, a very small part of that, has to do with the fact that we push these guys really really hard uh... in terms of getting their recognition and then as as sort of their reputations grew you know they became the mainstream even though as we agree there is no mainstream in jazz but you know they became a larger portion of the jazz ecosystem to the point where they're no longer considered avant-garde you know people's years grew as well people's you know by putting out music that's Unusual and foreign, or foreign is not the right word, but you know that that's unusual, um, or new, different. You're helping to stretch people's ears, and then you realize five years from now you can put out the same thing and it doesn't sound strange anymore. Now mm-hmm. it sounds actually like, oh, I, I can I can groove to this. Five years ago I thought this was you know like a like, painful, but now it feels completely different. And I do think that in very some very very small way we've done, we've helped with that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to add one thing. I mean, I think, and I think you on this, yeah, I think you kind of touched on it. But I think one thing that we were pretty focused on, essentially, was frankly never using the term avant-garde, and always pushing the term, always pushing the fact that everyone we worked with was based in composition. You know, I mean, there there are certainly tracks on you know recordings by Roscoe and the Art Ensemble that are quote-unquote free, no doubt about it. But let me tell you, it's pretty rare that Roscoe is heading into anything without a game plan for anything that he records, you know? Yeah. So we were always out there, you know, whether it was you or anyone else we were speaking to, we were always hammering home the idea of composition, composition, composition. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I've looked and I've sort of watched how, for lack of a better term, some of the other camps in the New York scene have slowly, suddenly you see a lot, well, I compose too, you know what I mean? And then suddenly they began pushing forward the idea that they were composers. And I think in part that happened because you know, I think our approach to it kind of works. You know, we got people to focus on something different. You know, we got people to focus on, hey, if you're going to talk about Henry, if you're going to talk about Wadada, you know, you're going to talk about Vijay or Ridresh or Taishon. Don't talk about Taishon as a drummer. You're going to look very naive. You're going to look really naive if you talk about Taishon as a drummer. You got to talk about Taishon as a complete musician. You got to talk about Taishon as a composer. And we kind of forced that. Otherwise, people were going to look very uninformed. You know, because just the level of what was happening, particularly with the younger guys who were no longer the younger guys, but you know, particularly with, with, with you know the people that were mentoring was was way up, you know, and, and we pushed that to the forefront, or tried to at least, in terms of how we wanted their music to be approached. And in part I think that occurred because we were very consistent. You know, we were never a label of standards. You know, we were never putting out, okay, fine, we concede. Here's a bunch of standards. You know, we were never gonna do that all right here's our album that grooves that was never something we were going to do it it was pretty much if you're beginning to dig us you got to dig us on you got to dig us on uh, on the grounds that we want to be appreciated and here's what it is
0: Mm -hmm. i want to talk about sort of the the business side of things a little bit because you know i'm curious about that not only as someone who's followed the label for so long, but also someone who's, you know, going to start putting out records, you know, and wants to know more about this. So I you said, you know, you said you try and hold to like four five, you know, five, six releases a year, but in 2007, 2008, and 2009, you slowed down a lot. It was like two albums, three albums. So was that just because everything slowed down or what was, you know i had a kid sorry i screwed up i had a kid <laughs> sorry i apologize oh okay because you know in 2008 everything went to shit. i mean that was when i lost was, my she, last full-time magazine job
1: you know she
2: was bo- she was born june 5th 2008 my bad
0: sorry
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if we ever went down to two releases yeah i don't man. Really recall that there was no, a right.
0: year where you guys put out two records
1: it's well, possible. certainly, last year two thousand twenty was a two two release year, but that, that's for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't think there's any correlation beyond uh, beyond personal issues, because I mean, ultimately, this this label is just me and Seth. There's no machine behind us. Uh, we both have other things that we do to uh, put bread on the table, and so you know, a lot of this is also dictated by our bandwidth. Our you know personal bandwidth, which uh, I, I, that's another thing that I think people are always amazed by, is that you know that, that we are able to somehow put out you know five or six releases of you know high caliber, seemingly putting real work into it, uh, and not just in a slapdash kind of way, um, and then people are surprised when we they find out that this is not our full time gig. You know, that this is just part of of many things that we do.
0: And you guys do actually, like, front studio money and stuff like that. You don't, like, wait for your artists to bring you a completed record. Because I know a lot of labels do that these days. Somebody will say, hey, I have this in the can. Would you like to release it, you
1: know? Yeah, I I think the situation has changed a lot in the last five years. I think that uh, early on it was absolutely true. You know, we were, we were, uh, you know, we invested in our artists. Um, Money was never really the, uh, was never really an obstacle, meaning we were never going to agree to somebody squandering, you know, for 15 days in the studio, except for the art ensemble. But, uh, 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 you know, but we always, we always agreed to go to the best studios, you know, under the best of conditions. And, 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 and that's the way it worked for years. The truth is the economies of the industry just no longer permit that. Uh, And we can get into a whole long thing about the ecosystem and where the money really is in the ecosystem now. But, uh, there was a time where, if we had a younger artist who was less well-known and we did our work, we could expect to sell an X number of copies of of a record. Uh, I would say that a similar situation now, we could probably sell a third of that number. So the math just doesn't add up anymore. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what happens then is that the whole... There are just other ways that, that 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 artists need to reach out and figure out how to make the economics work for us to 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 for us to do these things. We do put in money still quite often. It depends on the artist. Uh, more established artists, we always do. You know the Threadgills and the Steve Colmans of the world. We always do. Uh, it's the younger artists who where the sales figures are always you know going to be you know. Can't be expected to be very high, at least in the beginning. I think those are the situations where it becomes very tough.
0: Mm-hmm. Your latest release is Hafez Motorzada's Facets. When I interviewed him about that for Bandcamp, he seemed oddly proud in a way. Like he kind of laughed about it, but he said that his previous album for you was your lowest selling release. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> So I'm curious, is that actually true? And you know, are we talking like triple digits or you know, what's the what's the difference between a, a really good selling pie release and a really not great selling pie release?
1: Well I guess I guess I
2: guess the poorest selling pie release is facets because it's only been out for about a month, so that's but that that that's more a question of timing. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. That's fun. That's funny that Hafez would say that. Um you know, I think the difference is a poor selling pie release. It's not triple digits, it's four digits, uh, a good selling pie release is five digits, you know, we're, we're, we don't hit six to six digits, but there, there, there's a decent amount of space between low four digits and mid to high five digits. And, you know, the economy, you know, the ecosystem that, that you was talking about, you know, it, it makes a difference. You know what I mean? Again, it's, you know, as you said, we do other things to put bread on our table. You know, we both have families. Um, We put a tremendous amount of time into this, particularly relative to the amount of time we put into other things we have in our lives. So, you know, to sell 1,000 copies or to sell 2,000, 3,000 copies, you know, it's... There's a difference in terms of, of what's coming back to us. That being said, that's never been what we've been about. And I think in a certain way, Hafez is like the perfect example of that. You know, Hafez is kind of everything that I think we look for in an artist, you know, a musician with their own system and their own music, you know, Hafez is completely about his music and what he is pursuing. And at the end of the day, when people talk about Hafez, they will talk about his music and they'll talk about, they'll talk about his tunings and what he spent a lifetime pursuing. And that's something we want to be involved in. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the ability to keep a band together, all right, you know, put that, put that aside. That's just not who Hafez is, you know, But in terms of a voice and composition, he's the person we want to be with. So that's funny that he would cite that and and in a certain way. That's beautiful, you know, because, yeah, you know, it it doesn't really make a difference to us. That would never that would never uh, deter us from working with him again, you know. Uh, But it does, you know, it, it obviously is a factor in how we structure anything or how we put a recording together you know to that extent hey we took a lot of time with that recording because it had to work for us you know what i mean we mm-hmm. had to find different ways to make it happen
0: yeah and it does seem like his moment has come i think because the new one is being received really really well so it's amazing right you know. it's
2: amazing yeah that's yeah, a beautiful you
1: know, and uh, listen i mean we we've always had faith in him you know there's no doubt and and, and you know he uh, you know he's not in new york he's a professor at san francisco state university uh you know we're not here to document a scene and 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 hafez is definitely not part of any scene (laughs) Uh, yeah and so uh you know but we're here about the music you know we're we're here we it takes a lot for us to accept someone into the pie family it's really really hard to crack the pie family because we know that once you're in Uh, until we decide mutually that it's no longer beneficial for either of us, Uh, and usually it's up to the artist to make that decision, not us, you're with us. If you want, if once you're in, if you want to be with us, you're with us. And so for Seth and I to make a commitment to an artist, it's a commitment for the long term. It's, it's, and Hafez is exactly that. You know, we made a commitment to Hafez, And when he comes back to us with an idea, you know, we will always give it serious thought and we will always support him. So, and that's the way we've operated. And I think that musicians know that. Mm -hmm. They understand that and they appreciate that.
0: Yeah. From a small business owner perspective over the course of the last 20 years, can you think of anything that was like a big mistake at the time but an important lesson as a business owner did you guys hmm. ever like pick a really bad distributor or you know sink uh, a lot of money into something and then you know have to wait years for it to come back you know that kind of shit so oh, i mean plenty. there are things that
1: we've sunk money into that will never have come back
2: to us <laughs> plenty, plenty the, of the latter there's, there's been a, a lot
1: deal. of mistakes made you know, we've made a lot more, we've been right more often than we've been wrong. But just like any small business, you know, you're going to make, if you're going to go out on the limb, and we're talking economically here, we're not talking about artistically, okay? So, mm-hmm. so divorce the two concepts. Uh, there are definitely things that we thought that we would do better with and that did not do nearly as well. Um, I want to say that, um, you know, we've gotten a lot better uh, in, over the years. In terms of how we assessing out what are the economic possibilities of an album, we're rarely f- very, very far off. Um, and 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 you know, I mean, there are certainly lots of things that are completely out of our control. The advent of Spotify, for instance, the advent of streaming platforms. This is out of our control, and it's you know, it's crushing the economics of the business. Um, before that when tower records went down it was absolutely brutal i mean it was one of those like oh why are we still doing this you know we had inventory out there the oldest tons of money the the art
2: on some in non-cognitive it was actually out,
1: non-cognitive aspects came, of-
2: came out like the week the tower went down and they had all of our inventory oh and they paid for none of it and it was all discounted right so we didn't get paid on that inventory and it was probably sold at like five bucks a piece or something. And it was just like, oh, my God, you know, I mean, and it was like a double live out. I mean, it was you know, the worst of the worst. Yeah, yeah.
0: man. Yeah, I uh, I'm actually waiting for the first two discs that I'm putting out because I went to a nice printer on the West Coast mm-hmm. and they I sent them the files. Literally, I sent them the files in November and then Oof. they had a covid outbreak and closed for like five weeks. And mm. so now they're telling me that you know I'll get them in a week or two, you know, like mm. a week or two from today. And it's like you know, dude, I sent you files in November, and it's six months for two CD jackets. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, yeah.
2: It's you know, it's funny. I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, you know, you always read. It. There's certainly albums that we put money into that we meant, but we may never see a positive return on. You know, and. It's funny, I think less about those. Sometimes I think more just about the stuff that we thought would be better received, I just mean from a sales standpoint, and that, you know, may have been really well received by press. But, you know, for example, you know, the Vijay R and the Mike Ladd recordings, those, those those are difficult those are difficult subjects. That's difficult subject matter for people. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Post 911 and people that were that were returning from war, essentially the impact of war on them. But those are to my ears, unbelievable recordings. You know, and if you really think again about jazz, and not that those are necessarily prototypical jazz recordings, but if you think about you know jazz as as, as a message, a music to convey a message, man, could you get anything that was more of its time and more just you know, necessary in that moment. And those recordings, while doing, frankly, very well, didn't, I think, reach as large of an audience as we thought they may. And it, it's funny, because I can kind of remember speaking with Vijay, and he's like, man, you you may be surprised. People have a really hard time dealing with the impact of war. He was like, I, I'm with you. You know, I, I hope that we reach this huge audience as well, because I really remember looking at holding it down and thinking, like, This is going to touch everybody. Like anybody with a soul is going to hear this and is going to is going to be receptive to it. He's like, you'd be surprised how how many people don't want to deal with this stuff, man. Just Mm -hmm. you know, get ready. And that came and that occurred as as Vijay got the MacArthur. You know what I mean? Like, you know, could there have been a moment for greater reception? And the albums did phenomenally. But I always really thought those albums would be something that were like blowing doors open. And that made, maybe that was just my kind of, you know, head in the cloud dreaming about what could be, but.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Are things, are certain things easier now? Like after 20 years, 90 releases, do you have certain procedures locked in or does every release bring an element of chaos and uncertainty? Not so much. No, I mean, I think, I
2: think everything, you'll uh, listen to I shouldn't talk about this. I've got no idea what it takes to get the releases out. Eulim pretty much shepherds that thing from like A to Z. I'm 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 am pretty I'm pretty I'm pretty uh, detached from some of that stuff. But no, I don't think there's too much chaos at this point. I mean, there's no. always a little bit of shit, but nothing's too serious. Yeah, we
1: we we've got it down down pretty pretty much at this point. I mean, it's uh, you know, the 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 year starts to really break down according to a calendar. You know, it's like. The next month and a half will be dedicated to this release. The next month will be dedicated to this release, and you know, we've got our little checklist of things we need to get done. And you no, know, it's I think it's actually pretty smooth. We 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 we've learned a lot of lessons. We learned a lot of hard lessons over the years, and and you know, now it's actually pretty smooth. Yeah. Still a lot of work though. It's still a ton of work. You know, because we don't we don't stint on doing the hard work. You know, we're you know, it's we're not a label uh, where it's just stuff handed to us and we just slap it out. You know, we're still very much involved in a lot of these things. Speaking with artists, developing, you know, having an ongoing dialogue with the artists. Uh, you know, doing the artwork, the package design, uh, helping with the mixes and the masters. Uh, you know, talking about sequencing, talking about, you uh, you know it, it, it then really working with the artist to craft the story you know as you know member of the press it's all about getting you know getting that hook getting that story right because it's not just about the music mm-hmm. yes it's just about the music but to get people interested it's not just about the music so there's a lot of kind of kind of and and many musicians that's the last thing they want to talk about right they want to talk about the music and so helping them parse that all that out kind of kind of just just kind of somehow, get them to sort of open up about what their process is because I do think that people do like to hear about the creative process. I mean, these are creative geniuses, you know, and to get a better view into how a creative genius thinks. I think this is something that people who are into jazz are interested in. Um, And so, so that's one of the things that that's another thing that we do. Uh, uh, We do all of our own press You know, meaning we do our, you know, Seth does all the press work, and and I think that that's helped us a lot over the years because it's different.
0: Money, publicists charge. Oh well, absolutely, absolutely.
1: (laughs) We we we. There's no doubt about that. But I also think that there's a certain, um, you know, we put our money where our mouth is, right? So when we say we this is great, well, you know that actually came from a couple of guys who. Really do think that this is great. You know, it's not just great because somebody you know is paying us four thousand dollars to say that it's great. We really do actually think that it's great. So I think if that gives us a little bit of uh, credibility, uh, or hopefully more credibility than 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 just uh, uh, you know somebody who's hired to do the job. So you know, so we do really everything from beginning to end, and mm. and, and and that's part of quality control and. Part of part of just sort of maintaining maintaining, you know, the, the label image, the label message, um, uh, you know, the, the, the yeah. So that's
0: it. Yeah,
2: and I, and I think you know I think part of part of what's kind of been fun at this point is you know over time we've kind of we've been fortunate that we've developed our group of people that we work with other than the musicians. You know, the the designer that we work with now on our artwork. I mean, Simon's probably been doing stuff with us now for almost like a decade. And before Simon it was another another guy named Michael China who maybe was doing it for like four or five years. before Michael China was a guy named Nick Zelanis. You know, so it was like three people distinct hands had their hands in the artwork. And they've they've probably done ninety five percent of all the artwork. You know, here and there a couple of the, the album covers are done by some other people. You know, uh, Kate Gentile for example does a lot of Matt Mitchell stuff. Um and that and that's cool. You know what I mean? But it's generally speaking, we've had, you know, very consistent voice with the with the presentation of the artwork and the same thing with the presentation of the sound itself. You know, Liberty Element is probably at this point mixed and or mastered I don't know, 70, 80 percent of the of the label. You know what I mean? Or, you know, when Systems 2 was around, Jesus, you know, 80, 90 percent of all the music was recorded at Systems 2 with the Marcianos. You know, so it, it just became a thing where we found our group of people to work with. And, you know, it, it, of course, made everything easier. You know, it, it wasn't about going into a new place and talking about mics and talking about setup and talking about environment or, you know, what are we looking for sound wise or aesthetic wise? You know, we, we've been fortunate, you know, John Rogers taking photographs, that kind of thing. You know, we, we've been very fortunate to, you know, put together kind of like a core group of people, stay with them. And, you know, if, it's not, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know what I mean? Just keep, keep, keep making this thing the best it can be.
0: Are there things that you've said no to like for example i remember when i interviewed tyshawn about uh pillars the three cd set you know uh, was that something that came to you first before he went to firehouse 12 or you know are there you know things like that where you were just like can't do it this year you know
2: i i I, did, I didn't know this interview was gonna was gonna involve the mistakes we've made i'm sorry phil i wish i had known this question was coming ahead of time I would or <laughs> uh we've definitely said no to things we've definitely said no we to say things. no to
1: things as a matter of fact one of the harder things about this job is actually saying no to things because things are coming our way all the time um a lot of things that end up getting huge critical acclaim uh, like
2: pillars like pillars <laughs> like
1: pillars but 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 even um, musicians who who we've said no to um Records that we've said no to, projects we've said no to, uh, end up doing incredibly well, and and you know, I, I think Seth and I are not regret people. Um, we're always kind of looking forward, but you know, th- if you want, if you really want us to look back, yeah, we absolutely there are things that that you know we've said no to. It's like oh, okay, maybe we shouldn't have said no to that one. Um, there, I think,
2: are, I, I think Dawn of Midi may have been a good pie release. You know, in yeah, retrospect. Well, they- <laughs> but,
1: but, all right, so this is the other part of this, this dynamic is that Seth and I actually need to hash all the stuff out between the two of us because mm-hmm. this is a, I, I think it's actually a strength of the label because it there are lots of things that come in and it's got to work for both of us. Mm. And it's a lot harder for it to work for two people with, you know, each with his own, own taste than uh, to have it work for only one person. If it's just you, it's much easier to say yes to things. Uh, Seth and I, you know, we'll have I wouldn't say heated arguments, but we'll debate. We'll definitely debate things. Um, And and as far as Pillars is concerned, you know, I think it's, Tyshawn I feel like understands that there are limitations. And, you know, and he's usually very understanding when we tell him, you know what, we just can't do this one, but he also knows that if he has to get it out, he's got other outlets, you know, at this point, Taishan can do whatever he wants, um, given the recognition that he's, he, he's received.
0: When I worked for, for about five years, I worked for Roadrunner, the metal label, and their releases were pegged very heavily to tours. And stuff like that obviously because you know it's a metal record the the summer european tour season you know was huge every year you know that's not really the case in jazz and it's really not the case with a lot of the artists that you guys work with so what what are the sort of external factors or circumstances that influence the timing of a release for you guys you know that you're or that you're kind of banking on when you put a record out, I mean obviously in twenty twenty there were no tours at all, so you know, but typically, in a normal year, like what influences the the calendar in terms of externalities
2: you know i think I think in a lot of ways the label's pretty democratic, you know, I think you and kind of alluded to this earlier. We essentially slot uh any of the artists on the on the roster a space to release every 24 months give or take you know you, you got to be flexible obviously um so it's less about us saying hey is the moment right for this and more about us tr- trying to have established a release schedule that could work for them and work for us i don't know how we backed into the 20 more four month thing it just sort of happened frankly it was probably had a lot to do with henry's uh, recording schedule or what have you um but you know essentially that's it you know you every two years if you're ready we kind of have a commitment to be here for you within that calendar year try to look at sensible things to be honest if it's a younger artist who we think you know would benefit from having a little bit more time for people to to get familiar with the recording like like hafez for example and not, not necessarily that hafez is younger in terms of calendar years but you know hafez still has a large audience that we're trying to work to reach Um, and and make aware of his music so we kind of want to get him out a little bit earlier in the year so frankly we just have a lot of runway for people to see all the great press it's getting kind of maybe give uh, a recording or an artist a chance who they may not be familiar with previously and you know eventually warm to the recording and come around Um, you know of course if you have someone who's a little bit more established like Steve Coleman or Henry Threadgill who has more opportunities uh, during the summer to get overseas and actually put together a tour you know whatever that means in this world of jazz uh obviously we try to time those releases accordingly and then you know there's just the you know frankly then then you just got people like Ty Sean or like matt mitchell or like dan weiss or like miles Okazaki who are just so anxious and ready to document they're just being so creative that you just sit there and you try to you know work with them and figure out what makes sense for them and you know and frankly be very kind of open with them about hey you know uh, you're doing something this year shows jen shu so jen's going to come out this time because we've been speaking to jen about this for a while we got to slot you in here does that work with any you know any any shows that you've been that you've been trying to get online etc and we just try to make it work but you know to your point it, it's not roadrunner you know what i mean we're not we're not coordinating with you know with three month, you know, six week outings. That, that that's not really what it is. At least not today. It used to be a little bit more like that in the past, for sure. Um certainly not today. Hopefully hopefully it'll return to that.
0: With bandcamp, you guys have a really strong profile on Bandcamp now. And I know from working with them myself that you can get very sort of granular about who's buying your stuff. So is there a state or a country where you guys have like a really devoted audience? That's a surprise to you. Like a super devoted Henry Threadgill fan base in Indonesia or something.
2: <laughs> no, we've not hit the Indonesian market yet. No, we haven't. Um, you know, we have pretty good, honestly, this is the very mundane answer. After two decades, we've got pretty good release. We've, we we, kind of have our hands in a lot of places through, through our actual physical distributors. Um, such that our our releases are pretty much out there, and so much as stores exist, um, I, I can't say that Bandcamp has shown us any particular country or state that's amazing. I, I think I, I look at it differently. The nice thing about Bandcamp is, you know, I actually know who you know Johannes is, you know, from Germany, because Johannes is buying everything, or I can see how regularly Sam Amadon is buying releases. So it, for me, it kind of becomes more individual you know what I mean? And I just sort of see, you know, to actually have that connection to an individual, you know, uh, you know, a a Rob Altick and just be able to say like, wow, you know, this person is there and they're a real person and they're buying from us as if it was a real physical store, you know, as if someone was really, you know, down the block and coming in. I kind of view Bandcamp more like that, less that it's opened up territories to us necessarily. It's, you know, I I think we have our hands in a bunch of territories and and it's, it's pretty widespread, you
0: know. I guess my last question is: you mentioned, you know, that you've got the Gen Shu record coming next, and the Hafez record started the year. So, what's the rest of your twenty twenty one look like? What's What's
1: after that? You want me to take that, now? Yeah. So uh, after after Gen Shu, we can get you the titles to these things. Um, uh, is uh, Anna Weber? it's a double record called idiom and it's uh, uh one disc is the simple trio which is matt mitchell and john hollenbeck mm-hmm. and then the other other half is actually a very large band i it's a 10 11 piece band sort of half improvisers and half sort of contemporary music musicians um, heavily composed just incredible music i mean anna is a just a incredibly imaginative composer. Uh, After that is something that we probably, you know, learned from our mistake with Taishan, with Pillars, and we've agreed to do this. And it is going to be a six CD set with the music of Matt Mitchell and Kate Gentile playing their Snark Horse songbook which is uh, uh, a series of one bar compositions that uh, say 10 different musicians in various rotations improvise on. And it's really just, a, a, you know, as much as anything else, it's just, an, it's, it's, an, an, it's very, very simple snippets of music or actually incredibly complicated snippets of music, but really just seeing how master improvisers today can take little snippets of sound and what they can do with it uh, after that it is uh becomes more blurry steve coleman uh we've had an album out uh in the can with him live at the village vanguard and that's going to come out later this year the second half of the, the second this, half yeah exactly the second right. half
2: a different uh, band, though.
1: So actually, so from, from with, the following year. So a different yeah, with, yeah, with with Kokai on on as on on uh, um, vocals, uh, doing uh, what's the right word, rapping. What <laughs> co-
2: what, what, what Kokai does? Yeah. <laughs> what Kokai does? I don't know what
1: Kokai does. Uh, and then finally, we're gonna end the year with uh, Henry Threadgill and the next uh, installation of Zoid. It's actually an exciting year for Henry because he actually has an autobiography coming out. Um, and that'll be out towards the end of the year.
0: That's right, and yeah. So Seth, you and I talked about that when he played yeah. the jazz gallery, that yeah. uh, there was a book. So. Yeah, so they've been working on it
1: uh, uh, with a uh, professor at Columbia, Brent Hayes Edwards. They've been working in collaboration on this for, they've been collaborating on this for years now. And uh, it is going to be coming out later this year. And so we are, the music is done. We're basically holding off until, until, uh, until the, to, to come out in, in, in conjunction with the publication date of the book.
0: I think that's obviously, I mean, William Parker has proved that this year that that's a very smart move. You know, yes, <laughs> yeah, ten right CD box set, and here's a biography, and there you go. And yeah, there you, know, you go. So every piece go. of every article written has you know covered both, so it's clearly no, yeah. it's clearly the way to go. <laughs> yes,
1: and
2: and at the same time, we, we 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 would be remiss if we didn't say Henry. I guess in less than a month, also receives an NEA. So Henry's a part of the NEA. Yeah, yeah. So that's you know, it's 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 a very nice year for Henry and. uh, had COVID not occurred, there were other things as well, you know, presentations in galleries and museums. I mean, it was so. Well, I'm sure some of that stuff will work itself out in 2022 as well. But yeah, a lot of stuff happening for Henry. I think
0: it's uh, I think it's it's time. I mean, because he's he's one of those guys that is not as I mean, he's got a big catalog of records, but he's not as documented as he should be in the sense of like big magazine profiles you know (laughs) in-depth interviews stuff like that like I've read a few but not a ton and he's not somebody who talks a lot about his process or about his compositional methodology I mean I remember when I was I interviewed Joe Morris years ago because he wrote that book about you know uh, the structures and methods of free music and he said that he approached Henry about, you know, including some of his methodology in the book and Henry pushed him off. It was like, nope, yeah. I'm not giving away my secrets, you know? Mm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Henry is, is notorious for not really wanting to talk about his own music. Uh, it's always a struggle for me when I'm working on press releases and trying to get him to talk about the music. It's always easier for me to get that information out of his, his, uh, his bandmates. That it is out of him i mean he he's one of those guys who really wants his music to just speak for itself yeah. uh, and
2: uh and and, and it's funny because i mean i think you know I, I always feel awkward whenever we say this because you know I, I think at some point we've said it during this conversation you know we are we have been very fortunate with the level of recognition that the labels received and the releases have received and you know certainly what the artists you know the, the recognition the artists have received but I've often sort of thought, like, it's not really enough, which is just, you know, that that that's only child syndrome. I'm like the most spoiled human being alive. You know what I mean? Like whatever I've gotten, yeah, there could have been a little bit more. You know, you're holding back on me. But I think Henry's kind of a good a good example. You know, like Henry got the Pulitzer. And, you know, I, I really remember, like, speaking with different different editors being like, really, now is not the moment where you kind of step to the forefront and, and, and you have like. A huge piece on Henry and talk about how much he's accomplished. Why? Because there's only three. There are only three quote unquote jazz musicians that have ever received a Pulitzer while they were alive. You know, the fourth Ellington was recorded posthumously. Uh, sorry, recognized uh, posthumously. So it's just there's a weird thing there. He's received so much, so many accolades, but in a strange way, no one has I think really been able to wrap their arms around it in an appropriate manner or a manner at least that we think is is probably befitting his contributions um and you know but i mean again i think i think we could say that for a lot of people i think we could say that for the art ensemble we could say that for muhal i mean i think anytime something phenomenal has happened we've always kind of been like come on you know now right now And it's always more often than not it feels sometimes like the answer is just not the right time you know but that being said the artists, the releases, you know, us, we've been very fortunate with how much has, uh, has kind of come our way. You know, we're just always looking for a little bit more, you know. Mm-hmm. Selfish. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, that was my conversation with Seth Rosner and Yulin Wang of Pi Recordings. And that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if so, I hope you'll consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to improve the website and the show. So visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and throw us $5 a month if you can.
1: Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one.